Right. Well, this could be the shortest message ever. Just, uh, they're going to be up here, the gallery will be up here probably saying five minutes, ten minutes, two minutes. This is going to be short, so we've got to get out of here quickly this morning, but that's okay. I believe that, uh, you know, just as the sun stood still for Joshua, I suppose the sun could stand still for us this morning, and we're going to believe that starts now. Uh, why don't you turn with me to Mark? Chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to go through to the verse 19. We're going to look at the disciples this morning. But please know that this passage, like every other passage, we have to see Jesus at the center of it. We're not to become like the disciples per se. We're not trying to be like Thaddeus or James the Less or Peter. But we want to be like Jesus. And he is making disciples of us. Today, and he's calling us to make disciples of all nations. And so as you see uh, in chapter 3, we're a couple of, just the, in the fall series, we started with Mark, and we're uh, just through chapter 3, and basically Mark is making an argument, and every page as I was praying this morning, he is making one argument that Jesus is truly the Son of God. Now we can learn so much from these passages, but you cannot lose that simple argument that he is the son of God and Mark every page demonstrates why he is the son of God. And as we've seen so far, we've seen miracles, we've seen signs and wonders, we've seen demons casted out, we've seen uh, uh, Jesus come in and, and inaugurate a brand new religion. And that is what ultimately was already in chapter two, they were already planning his death. And there's 14 more chapters to go. And you can see that it's beginning to get a little ugly. As you can see, there's mobs of people trying to gather around him. And people were following for all sorts of reasons. They were following him. Yes, of course, that he, he demonstrated that he is the son of God, that he can forgive sin and that he can overcome demons and he can overcome the archenemy Satan. And he can, he can uh, definitely school the bad guys, the Pharisees. There's, he's done so much so far. And really what he's trying to help us understand, Mark, is that we can trust him. No matter what you're going through this morning, you can trust him. He is God. We should listen to him. And just as when Jesus got out of the waters of baptism, the spirit descended on him to say, he is the one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets were telling all of us about. He's here now. And John got to witness that. And the father spoke to him with an audible voice and said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus is beginning to shift. He's, he's, he's running into people uh, that are sick and lame and leprous and he could, he, they're, they're no match for his power. There's nothing that he can't overcome. This is Jesus. He is the Christ. And as you see here, Mark is what he's doing from verse 7 to 12 is he's giving kind of a summary. Um, we're going to blow past these verses pretty quickly here. But just Mark is giving us, and there's, there's a lot here. Of course, you can expound upon that and, uh, bit by bit. But this morning, for the sake of Time just there's a, a wonderful, amazing summary, and then he begins to 
change strategies. It looks like Jesus is about to change strategies from, yes, he's still got the crowds. Pretty much all of where he's been, uh, people are healed. Uh, I, I doubt that anybody even had disease at that point. I mean, he just, everybody that he came in contact with, he would take care of. What a wonderful time that would have been for all of us to live. But Jesus actually said in John, he said, it's actually better to live now because you'll do greater works than these. Not to say that he's, we're going to do better, more extraordinary miracles than him, but we'll actually get to see the gospel spread all around the world. And we sit here today marveling at that, saying, wow, that's so cool that we get to be a part of the 21st century. They got to be a part of the first century and see just one tiny little nation be transformed. But we've gotten to see just dozens of nations transformed around the world with the same exact message that he called his disciples to preach. Isn't that amazing? What a privilege this is to be where we're sitting, to have church history behind us, to have 2,000 years of Christ's power page by page of just seeing him move and seeing this start and have such humble, humble beginnings as we'll see here. So verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan and vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. He was growing in popularity, but I would say equally he was growing in increasing uh, hatred for him and what he was doing. People hated him for one reason. They hate people today. As Plato said, there is none more hated than those who speak the truth. And that is what's happening even today in our world. You speak the truth in your workplace, you might have a target on your head. Most likely you will, because this world does not tolerate truth. They love darkness because what? Their deeds are dark. And so Jesus, he comes in with this incredible, like Mark is saying, he is super popular, but he is also hated. He's also hated because he came in with a new religion. As you saw Jesus with the wineskin illustration, you can't put these two religions together. What are they? The gospel of grace and the gospel of works cannot move together. In fact, that doesn't even make sense, the gospel of works. It's not the gospel. It's not good news, is it? The, the new patch and the, 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 the new patch and the old garment, it will tear when it is washed and then dried. And Jesus gave the perfect illustration for that. When, he, when we talked about that back in chapter two, he came with a new religion. Now you might be asking, what about the Old Testament? Well, yeah, that was pure. That was good news. Faith in God and the Old Testament, faith in what he did in Egypt in rescuing them from bondage is the same gospel in the new faith, by faith, by grace, in God alone, in Christ alone. And that's why it's important to see that this message from Genesis all the way to Revelation is pure. It's the same. And these Pharisees, all they did in the, prior to the first century, they began to distort it. And they began to have a love for power, which is always ruins pure religion, pure religion. And so he comes in with great popularity. 
So much, though, in fact, it says in verse 90, he told his disciples that a boat should, be, should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. In other words, that word in the Greek, just it's a press on him to, to almost crush him to that point. There's so many people with so many needs. And you can imagine that, right? You, you can imagine that. Uh, and maybe we can't because we don't have that kind of desperation as the people did then. They had... Uh, also, they had grandma on, on their back, you know, just, you know, we got to get there. Come on, come on, come on. We got to get to Jesus because I know if you get to him, I've heard stories, you're going to be healed. And of course, he wasn't just interested in, interested in healing people, but also in saving them, bringing total restoration to their life. Almost a taste of heaven, if you will, on earth. It was a wonderful, wonderful time to be there in the first century Palestine. But it was also, he could see the people and how they would, they looked for him for temporary uh, provision of their needs. And he could see that, that they didn't understand that why the Messiah ultimately really came. Certainly wasn't just to help them overcome cold or even worse, maybe leprosy or those things because they would have to die and they have to go somewhere. And he knew that. He knew there was heaven. He knew there was hell. And so he came with a message, a message of good news. And this disturbed everyone he came encounter with. It disturbed the Pharisees utmost because it took their power away. And then in verse 10, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had, had afflictions. And afflictions just means uh, mastics. It means to whip or discourage. It means... To, to, to be underneath uh, oppressive, uh, maybe like a slave to a master type thing. But also they understood that afflictions came from God. That God afflicts. He punishes the people. And these people, they, they, they knew that. They had a theology of that. They had an understanding of that. But this, was, this would soften their hearts for the gospel, they would hear, oh, we are afflicted, but this is the one that can help us in our afflictions. Help us in our, they, could, they recognized their need, they recognized their sin, and so they ran to him, pressing around him, even to just touch him. Because they knew if they could just even just touch him, they would be healed. And then they soon found out they don't even need to touch him. Because so many were healed, not even in his very presence. Just his words. In fact, a thought. Not even a thought. Because he's that powerful. And then in verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. He didn't want the demons to be the evangelists. He had others in mind, didn't he? He had others in mind. And the demons prefer to hide, as we've seen in the scriptures. Demons today prefer to hide. If you don't know that, that's actually kind of terrifying when you think about it. He's, they prefer to hide, but occasionally they will blow their cover. Occasionally they'll blow their cover, and especially in front of Jesus. As you saw that happen uh, even in the synagogue when Jesus was preaching, the man screamed and he blew his cover. And if you ever read C.S. Lewis, right, the screw tape letters, there's this 
talk for an old, uh, uh, letters being exchanged from an older demon uncle to a nephew, a younger demon, and he's just kind of starting his career, his new career. And he's like, make sure you don't blow your cover. And he would blow his cover, and he'd have to come back and kind of confess to the older demon. It's a fascinating story. <laughs> but he's, they blow their cover because they can't help it because they are in the very presence of God himself. And he says, do not say, I think what also what's interesting about that is everybody else rejected Jesus in unbelief, but yet the demons believed. They believed. You know, demons have perfect theology. Better than yours. Better than yours. They read theology all day long. They just know how to manipulate you so that you don't believe their theology. That's a hard thing, isn't it? But he didn't want them to be the evangelists. And you think, Jesus is not desperate, by the way. He's like, well, nobody believes, so I guess I'll have these rascals tell them about me. No, he had others in mind. And it's interesting here in verse 13, he then titled, and in my Bible it's titled, The Twelve Are Chosen. We're going to talk the rest of this message about the twelve that were chosen but I want to build this up and give you a little background in, in the meaning of 12 and why Jesus chose these 12 men and the significance of even the number 12 and why he did this and why that even connects to the fact that he silenced the demons and he rejected the Pharisees. He was looking for true disciples who would believe him, who were humble and hungry. And this 12, we'll get to a moment, but let's just read uh, verse 13 here. I guess, and, and, and he went up the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And now in Luke 6, 12, he prayed all night long, it said. Now, before he picks his 12 disciples, now you, you can understand the power of that now today, but maybe the first century readers are like, okay, he prayed for some guys, and they became his disciples. But as we think now, 2,000 years later, looking back, that's pretty profound that he spent all night long saying, Father, who do you want me to pick? Who do you have? Because you know what? These Pharisees are not doing it, are they? This is a very difficult, they probably could, you can almost imagine this prayer. It's like the only ones that wanted it tell about me, I guess, are the demons. We need to change this. <laughs> because Israel has failed. They were supposed to be the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they failed. Miserably, didn't they? One thing to notice about verse 13 is that one of the things he prayed all night, yes, but he sovereignly chose them. You know, this wasn't some sort of volunteer efforts. He wasn't giving a call to volunteer. Who wants to be my disciples? I'll pay you good. This is going to be the best job you've ever had. No, this would get you killed. You'd have to deny yourself. This is something you don't put in the ad in a paper to solicit a job. Employees. 
but rather he chose them. And of course they had qualifications, and we'll get to those in a second. Not qualifications you might think. In John 15, 16, it says this, You do not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. Your fruit would remain. And so the title of this message is Faithful and Fruitful. The Faithful and Fruitful Disciple. I think this is going to be really encouraging this morning for all of us because we all find ourselves there as disciples of Jesus. Many of us beat ourselves up. Some are more on the prideful side, maybe a season where you think you're the greatest. And then soon you'll find yourself in the valley and know that you're not the greatest. And you'll find yourself identifying with these 12 and then we'll land in the last part of the message. We'll land on a story from the 1800s by a man named Robert Murray McShane who died at 29 years old, but was an incredible disciple that God used. And it's not what you think. And so these 12 basically were a judgment to Israel. When Jesus chose the 12 disciples, he was basically saying, Pharisees, you don't work for me. You have miserably failed. And now I'm going after those who are uneducated. I'm going after those who uh, are maybe not as intellectual as you are. I'm going after non-theologians. I'm going after ordinary men like you and me. In Luke 22, 28, he says this, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's referring to the 12. And just as the later part of his life, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What an incredible privilege when you think about that. Now that may not mean much to you because you're not, you haven't read the Old Testament in its entirety or studied it. But that's incredible when you think about the, when you look through the 12 tribes of Israel and the leaders of that and, and how they went from Egypt into the promised land and, and the battles and, the, and then God sent up the, set up with David the kingdom and they kept failing and failing, but God kept giving him more grace and more grace. And, and we find ourselves here, perfect scenario for the son of God to come. And he finds himself with these people who don't represent God at all. And much of the church don't represent God, do they? So much of the church is misrepresenting God, even today. God's saying, you know what? I still have my own. I'm still looking for the hungry and humble. I'm still looking for those who will represent the kingdom. Now, you're not going to be the one who sits right next to the Lord. Like the disciples, mom came, remember her? Hey, can my sons be right next to you, Jesus? And then he says, you know, they're not able to drink my cup. Oh, Yes, they are. And, and eventually they did. They died horrific deaths. And they did drink the same cup. And they recognized the fact that they were not above their master. And whatever happened to their master would eventually happen to them. It's not an easy thing to walk with Jesus, is it? 
But Jesus knew that he would be killed. And he was wondering, not necessarily wondering, he's all-knowing, but wondering who would carry this message. And so he went up the mountain. This isn't the first time he thought about these names. He was already doing ministry with them. In fact, he was doing ministry with five of them by this time. And then he recognized, I can't do this in my own strength. He's the God-man. Remember, he is God, but he's also human. He became flesh. He's 100% man and 100% God. And he had to rely on his father. He modeled that well for all of us. And how to pick disciples. We don't just flippantly go into, oh, he's my disciple. There's a way in which things work. Because you could get really hurt in this disciple-making process. And so I would take his first cue and pray for them before you call them your disciple. And be very careful of calling your disciples your disciples. Because ultimately, we're just all sign points, posts, pointing to Jesus. All right. What are the... Jesus picked disciples for two reasons, and this is important. It says here in verse 14, and he appointed 12... So that two things, they would be with him. Disciples are with Jesus. That is the most important part of discipleship is that you're with him. We always look at discipleship as being like a job and we're doing all these things for God. Oh, I just want to do all these things for God. I often hear that even with with college students and with people getting out. I just want to do things for God. I just want to please God. And that sounds so pious and so amazing. I never hear, oh, I just want to be with God. I never swore. I love to hear. I just want to be with God because I know that like R.C. Sproul here says, anytime Jesus says, come to me, as soon as we hear come, the come because it becomes go very quickly. I know that if I see disciples saying, I just want to be with God, I know the next step is, oh, if the son, I found myself in mission. I find myself making other disciples. But those who are always trying to figure out what to do for God, do for God, it is so easy to forget to be with God. He says this in verse 14, for our benefit too, he appointed them to 12. Yes, he chose them, but to be with them so that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. You know, Acts 13 says this. Now, as they observe the confidence of Peter and John, they observe such confidence. And we all want that right. We love for people to say, man, what confidence. You know, I oftentimes even hear that in leadership. Oh, they have such confidence. You know, sometimes I, I feel like when people say, oh, they have such confidence. I think it's just because of their makeup. I'm not sure if it's because they've actually been with Jesus. Because there's certain profiles, there's certain certain temperaments that, you know, that they kind of look more confident than maybe others who are maybe a little bit more sheepish in temperament. Amen? That's not what we're going for. We're not going for kind of a confidence, uh, someone who has it all together. No, these people were confident for one reason and one reason only. And they understood that these people were uneducated. In other words, they were ordinary, untrained men, and they were amazed, absolutely amazed, not at them, but at their confidence. Because of what? Because they had been with Jesus. It's not them. 
as we'll see very soon here, it's certainly not the disciples that changed the world. It is God in them. It is Christ in them. Colossians 1, 27. Christ in them is the hope of glory. The glory of God shining through them. That's what the world started to bow their knee to. And then he sent them out to preach. In Mark 6, 7 to 12, you'll see that he summoned the 12 and sent them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the demons. And then in Acts 1, 8, he says this, go to all the world. In Matthew 28, we know that, 19 through 20, to preach the gospel of all nations, to teach them. Part of discipleship is not just preaching the gospel, the good news. Jesus died, rose again. Yes, of course, that's part, but also teaching them to observe everything that Christ commanded. It's the whole Bible. It's to disciple people in the word of God, not yourself. And so he said that he, he appointed them to be with him and he appointed them to preach. These were ordinary men, just like you and me. What a simple strategy. It's profound. When you think about it, you think there's no organizational strategy. He wasn't like, there was not like the typical church today. You see the kind of a CEO pastorate and you got the executive guy and the associate guy and you got this guy and that guy. And they're all, it just looks like a business with a cross. I was talking to something the other day. I said, I think, you know, with, uh, with Robin Hood, I think I see more feathers and crosses in this church. But, you know, that's not a bad thing. Businesses are not a bad thing. And a lot of businesses you see today, right, uh, they kind of mimic, really, it's the other way around, that the businesses mimic the simple strategy of the church, of how Jesus multiplies discipleship. And it's investing, fathers investing in sons, mothers investing in daughters, brothers and sisters investing in one another to expand the kingdom. It's so simple. That's all the organization you need. And of course, there's administration. Of course, we need that. We're, and it's actually a gift. According to 1 Corinthians 12, it's a gift. We need the, the whole body working together, 1 Corinthians 12, to strengthen and grow the church. You know, he does the same today. It's, he's not wanting us to build the church through gimmicks and smoke machines and trying to give things away and trying to, you know, mail flyers and whatnot. It's simple. It's a simple strategy that's timeless and it's tested. It's true. It works today. It's how this church was established. It started with nothing. It, I, you know, we weren't, I remember literally when we started the church, we started this church at the same time uh, one of my friends started the church and we were just about uh, you know, 60 miles apart and we were going and I started with you know, just my wife and I and one other person and it just started growing. We just started discipling people and having life group and investing in the few and I would have moments of complaining, God, why don't you, why am I not like that guy? You know, and he, he, he started his church and he blasted 45,000 flyers, spent so much money he would get 150 people in the church on day one and a, and a, new, a new 50 people every single week. But it would be, a, it'd be like a revolving door. 50 people come in, but 50 people would leave. And I remember him telling me, man, I wish I could be like your church. And I would tell him, I'm like, man, I kind of wish I'd be like your church. Look back at that. I'm ashamed to even say that. I wouldn't trade anything for what we have. 
to have true, long-lasting discipleship and family, to grow at his rate. You, you, you know, some churches like this, they, they scare me, don't they? They scare all of us to grow that fast. And it saddens me today that his church closed its doors a few years after he started. Because simply the American church planning model doesn't last. It doesn't last. The only thing that lasts is Jesus' strategy. It's 2,000 years old. still works today. It's teaching people to be with him. And as they're with him, teaching people how to be on mission. That's his strategy. You might be thinking, well, what else? That's it. No, there's got to be something else. Nope. Sorry, sir. That's it. That's it. So good. There are not theologians, not orators, not intellectual, but they are prone constantly to fail and unbelief. They were fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, farmers. Everyone was like that except Judas Iscariot. They were all from Galilee except Judas. They were not the scribes. They were not the Pharisees. They were not the religious leaders. They were not the Sadducees. They were simply ordinary men like you and me. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31 says this, that For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? We're always looking for someone with much skill today. Where's the scribe? In other words, where's the theologian? Where's the debater of this age? God's not looking for those people. God has not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for signs and Greeks searched for wisdom. And still today, the world's looking for the hot shots, the rich, the influential. I saw that so many ministries I was a part of. They're always looking for, he's the influential. What does that mean? He knows a lot of people. He's got lots of money. God's not interested in those people. They might pride themselves all day long. I can give you lists of people that I've met throughout my time in ministry for the last 20 years. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. It's offensive. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not as many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God who has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. He's describing what's happening here in Mark 3. The things that are not so that they nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us the wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm telling you, if Jesus would have picked Pharisees, they would have boasted themselves. If he'd have picked demons, that would have been absolutely disastrous. One other reason why, because Pharisees began to say that demons and Jesus were working together. One theologian says this, discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. It's what he can make of you. That's why he chose you. He's like, I, I, I don't need you to be perfect. In fact, I'll make you perfect. I'll make you perfect. Apostleship is thus a matter of being and being sent. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what? Being with him. Before being sent by him. If you're a young disciple. If, you, if you've just given your life to Christ. If you only walk with Jesus for a, a few amount of years. Consume yourself with being with Christ. If you're older and you forgot. You forgot what it's all about. And you're constantly just under this pressure. This weight. I gotta serve. I gotta serve. I gotta serve. You forgot what it's like to be a true servant of Christ. It's to be with him. So that when finally the service work is done, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because you'll know it's his strength and his power and he is glorified. And he gave him authority to preach. He authenticated the gospel. We've talked about this multiple times in the book of Acts that he authenticated his gospel message with miracles. Yes, he still does miracles today, maybe not as many, because he had one purpose with them and that was Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. It was to testify to the word of God, the message of the gospel with signs and wonders. Second Corinthians 12, 12 is the signs of the apostles, miracles, signs and wonders. In other words, God does not authenticate false teachers. He authenticates the true gospel preacher, disciples like you and me. But we don't need to demonstrate miracles on the street to get people to believe because God says he's saving people through the word of God. We have all 66 books of the Bible now. So here are the names of the apostles. We're going to spend the next, oh Lord, uh, few minutes uh, with the disciples. So there are three groups of four. And I'll just give you them. One, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Then you got Philip, Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and then Judas Iscariot, who is then replaced by Matthew uh, in Acts 1. So who are these men? Simon, of course you know Simon. He's the guy, he's the impulsive man. He's the man of action. He spoke before thinking, got in trouble, but yet he was transformed. And he was given the name Rock. And I think Jesus gave him that name early on because he wasn't a rock. He's saying, look, you are a rock. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what I want you to become, and you will become a rock. And you know what? Of course, you know that later on, he did become that rock. And then eventually he wrote letters of his own that are in the canon of Scripture. And he also helped write this very book, the Gospel of Mark. And then there is James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, nicknamed also known as the Sons of Thunder. 
they get that name? They're a feisty brothers, James and John. And it's interesting that, remember, in Luke 9, 54, they wanted to call down fire on those who rejected Jesus. So they rejected Jesus. They're running around, hey, Jesus, we can take care of that. We have this uh, incredible business where we just, uh, basically, anybody who rejects you, we can, we, can, we can burn them to death. Jesus is like, I'm trying to save people. <laughs> I came to seek and save the lost, not uh, seek and burn them. Uh, but thank you. I appreciate that. That might come in handy. Your personality may come in handy later on in life once it's sanctified, of course. Sanctified is the key word, James. They were part of the close inner circle. They were present at the transfiguration. They got the privilege of being with Peter, James, and John at the mountaintop. Peter eventually wrote about it. He said, hey, as cool as that was, there's actually something way cooler. It's called the Bible. It's the Bible. And then John, of course, he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John. Um, you can almost see that the sons of thunder, you know, sometimes Jesus gives names because he's like, okay, this is what you need to be. You need to get to the rock. You need to be the rock. You're not the rock. You're just a flimsy little pillow, and you need to get to the place of the rock, okay? And I can help you get there. And then the sons of thunder, he's like, please do not become that, okay? This is just a reminder that you're feisty brothers, and, and I, I want you to become more soft, more loving, right? That was marvelous just to see the nicknames. They're just normal guys. What happens when 12 guys get into a locker room? Right? All of a sudden, the nicknames begin. Or if you're living at the country uh, as well. Or if you come from Port St. Lucie. So, then there's Andrew, the brother of Peter, and John 1. He was the disciple of John the Baptist. Followed Jesus early. And he brought his, he brought his brother Peter. You know, and, and there's so much you can learn from this. Uh, it, you know, the fact that Andrew is less known and he's the one that brought Peter. And he's probably like, man, I brought this guy. And this guy's more popular than I am. But whatever. Probably some sibling rivalry happening there. But he also uh, had maybe a little bit of unbelief too. In John 6, he pointed out the boy, the boy that had the five loaves and Remember in the two fish, he's saying to Jesus, uh, I don't think it's going to be enough. What can we do with this small lunch bag? So you can see every disciple we're going to go through just looks like you and me. Philip from Bethsaida, same place as Peter and Andrew, John 6. Philip wondered where they could buy bread for the 5,000. And then you also hear in John 14, he doubted. He says here in verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father after they've been together for three years. And it is enough, that will be enough for us. We can just see the Father. Jesus said to him, I've been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And then there's Bartholomew, who is also called Nathaniel, means given of God. And he followed Jesus because of Philip. And so there was, I love to see the connections and how they brought one another. It's like the church. It's like this church. And how they bring your friends and, and how you get to see their life be transformed and changed. 
And then Jesus said of this one, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So he thought about Nathaniel. And then, of course, Matthew, we're not going to go through that because we just did a few, uh, last three or four weeks ago. Former tax collector that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And then there was Thomas, who's uh, nicknamed Didymus, which means twin. In John 11, he says, let us go with Jesus to Jerusalem so that we might die with him. And then he says in chapter 20, Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. He's willing to die with them a second ago. <laughs> After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. And stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hand. See the grace. See the grace for your unbelief. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who are right here sitting in this room, you and me. Blessed are they who do not see, yet they believe. We're blessed. <coughs> If you have any amount of faith, faith like a monk's Steve, you are more blessed than Thomas who stuck his finger in his side. It's amazing. James, the son of Alphaeus, nicknamed James the Less because he was a little guy. How'd you like to call that? James the Small Guy. <laughs> his mother named Mary followed Jesus. And by the way, I, I don't know if Jesus gave him these names. I mean, it could have been. He was like, hey, James, you know, we got to differentiate. You know, there's just James, the son of... Thunder, it looks a little edgy. You're going to be a James the Small guy. You know, that might be, you see the difference here. You don't want to get mixed up here. And uh, Thaddeus, known as Judas, uh, and it always says not Iscariot. Always <laughs> Judas was his birth name. Thaddeus is a nickname. And it also translated heart child or breast child, or in other words, mama's boy. Uh, and so, uh, John 14, 18 to 22, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, this is the context, and I'm gonna, we're going to see what that is, is all about. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, and you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So he's defining a disciple. He's defining what a true disciple is. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Daddy said, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not the world at large? You totally missed what Jesus was saying about what a true disciple is. He's still in the mindset of, wait a second. You're just you're talking to us now. You're not going to the world anymore. That's not good because what that points to is that he's not going to do business with the Romans. Romans. He's not going to free them from Rome. He's not going to be the, the long-awaited Messiah to free them from this bondage. And Jesus just simply replies to Thaddeus and says this, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and I will come to them and make my our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Then there's Simon the Zealot, he was a political revolutionary with a hot head. He would, you know, uh, 
be in disguise and then he would see maybe a, you know, a Roman uh, guard of, and, and if no one was watching, he'd kill him. He was out to kill and Jesus picked this man. It's shocking. And the fact that they keep calling him the zealot probably just kind of rubbed in his name. You remember Simon, you're Simon the zealot, Simon the zealot. And I would imagine that at one point, maybe he would want to kill Matthew considering he had, he was in cahoots with Rome. This was not a good mix. If you're having troubles in your discipleship right now, just be very encouraged. <laughs> I doubt there's a murderer in there. I doubt there's a... Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, last but not least, well, I shouldn't say it that way. Probably not. Uh, Judas Iscariot, he was listed last on purpose. But Jesus knew... Everything. He wasn't surprised. In fact, the Gospels constantly remind you that Jesus is not surprised even one bit. John 6, 70 says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Called him a devil. But yet somehow, he had such confidence, such security, the disciple maker, the disciple maker, capital D, he was not at all Insecure to be around Judas. And then in Acts 1, 15 to 26, this is, we, we find out another clue that this was just a part of God's grand scheme. It was a part of his plan. These are simple people. They were nicknames to show the fun, the intimacy that Jesus has with his disciples that we can also have with him. These ordinary men changed the world. In Acts 17, 6, these men who have upset the world have Come here also. In Ephesians 2.20 it says that these disciples are built on the foundation, or the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And we stand with the men today. We stand with them in this long list of godly men. We stand right there because you know what? It is our Lord too. It is our message. It is our mission. It's ours. We stand in this amazing lineage. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible privilege. You might be asking, what happened to them? What happened to them? Well, John, he was tried and executed. And it failed. They tried burning him, boiling him to death. It didn't work. He was exiled to Patmos where he wrote Revelation. Peter, he died on the cross upside down because he was not worthy to be tried, convicted, and die right side up, not like Jesus. Andrew, he was tied to a cross so that it would prolong the suffering. James, he was executed, as you know, in Acts 12, is the only recorded in Scripture by Herod Agrippa. Philip, he was stoned to death in Asia Minor. Nathaniel was bound and thrown into the sea to drown. Matthew was burned at the stake. Thomas was a missionary to India, and then killed with a spear. They actually obeyed Christ's words to go to all nations. They did. As far as they could go. James, Alphaeus the less, was killed by the Jews for preaching Christ. Thomas the doubter, he was a missionary. Or did I say that already? Missionary to India, killed with a spear. Simon the zealot, is a missionary to North Africa. And he, was at, he actually got killed in Egypt and he was sawn in half. 
Just like they say in Hebrews 11, those were sown in half for the gospel. And then Thaddeus, he was a missionary to Turkey and he was eventually clubbed to death. This is how they went. They were faithful, but they were fruitful, weren't they? I just want to close here with a, I'm not going to be able to go through all of it, but I just, I've been reading this incredible biography of Martin, uh, Robert Murray McShane. He was a, one of Scotland's greatest preachers. He died at 29 years old. And uh, he was also apathetic. And because of his brother's death, he died at 26. He was incredibly influential in his life. He wanted to be like him. He influenced him to be in ministry. And he wrote in his journal. And sometimes, you know, when you read these biographies of these revivalists in you know, Scotland or Europe or, you know, anywhere around the world, you're like, man, these people are going to, I'm going to be in for it. This is going to be a great show. I'm going to watch these people just do great things, extraordinary things. And you realize they were just, they were, they were just like you and me. They were, there was nothing to really write home about. And he was saying here in his journal, he was saying, and he was saying this, this day, 11 years ago, my holy brother David entered rest at 26. And on the same day, he wrote, in his, wrote to one of his members. He became a pastor in his early 20s, 21, I believe. And he was a pastor for a short period of time, but got to see revival in Scotland. He said this, pray for me that I may be holier and wiser and less like myself and more like my heavenly master. That I may not regard my life. If so be, I may finish my course with joy. This day, 11 years ago, I may have lost my loving brother, but I began to seek a brother, capital B, who cannot die. On December 18th, he wrote this after spending an evening too lightly, like many of us do, don't we? My heart must break off from these things. What right do I have to steal and abuse my master's time? Redeem it, he is crying to me. Redeem the time. I'm so foolish with my time. I'll tell you what, if you're in your 20s right now, you may want to listen to this. December 25th, my mind not yet calmly fixed on the rock of ages. Lord, help me to focus on you. January 12th, 1832, my heart was not at peace. Why? Because sin lieth at my door. That's why I'm not at peace. He understood that. In fact, he wrote, you know, talk about COVID. He wrote on January 25th. He said, 84 cases of cholera is near me in Musselburgh. How it creeps nearer and nearer like a snake. Who will be the first victim here? But let thine everlasting arms surround me so that I might be safe. They live with this too. They live with fear, early deaths. They said, my life is not my own. Disciple denies himself, picks up his cross and follows him no matter what. And then he writes later, he, he reads Edwards' work and Samuel Rutherford letters. And he reads uh, uh, John Newton and Calvin. He, he, he surrounds himself with great books along with scripture. The life of David Brainerd. He said, what a wonderful man. He, he's a man who died at 30 years old and he lived with Edwards in his house. And he worked with the American Indians. And he's saying, what a wonderful man. What conflicts and depressions and 
desertions and strength and advancement and victories within my torn bosom. I cannot express what I think when I think of thee tonight more set upon missionary enterprise than ever. He was obsessed with missions. He couldn't wait to leave. He wanted to leave. And in fact, he would struggle with his his motives in ministry. He'd say, oh, how it, it sounds greater to write letters from India to, to than to write letters in my own hometown because it sounds cooler. He struggled with motives. Were they pure? I want to do missions because it sounds noble and people look at me, oh, how they want to, oh, wow, look, he wants to go overseas. He wants to make great things of God. And he's saying, oh, I hate, I hate the fact. He says, I fear the love and the applause of man. May God keep me from preaching myself instead of preaching Christ crucified. Are you 23 and do you sound like this in your journals? Or are you like, God, give me a wife. <laughs> Give me a great job, Lord. Keep me from harm. We have a church full of those who full of self-preservation and self-denial. He would often get sick with fevers and he would lie down and he'd be sick in bed. At this particular time, the duration was shorter than normal. And he felt like God called him to write a song about trusting God and God in his time of trial. And he read, he wrote this to a letter to one of his students. He said, above all, keep in the presence of God. Never see the face of man until you see his face, who is our life, our all. It's a wonderful reminder, again, to stay with Jesus, to be with Jesus before being sent by him. You need to know the Lord before reaching others for him, he says. To be in Christ before being in the ministry was absolutely essential. He was terrified of Jeremiah 23. That he didn't want to be like the false teachers. He didn't want to be like them who, who didn't know God. He wanted to know God and he wanted to die well. He wanted to die well. A few more. He had such joy in being a disciple maker. Some of us are complaining of all the things that we have to do. Oh, my schedule's so busy. All this. And this is what he says. Much peace and rest tonight. Much broken under the sense of my exceeding wickedness, which no eye can see but yours, God. How do you even put up with me? The much persuasion of the sufficiency of Christ and the, the constancy of his, of his love. Yes, of course he knew his, his problems with sin, but he also knew the love of God. He knew the grace of God. And he says, oh, how sweet to work all day for God and then to lie down at night under his smiles. Hmm. Not wonderful. He knew the love of God. But he also says that the same thing months later, he says, too little, in prayer, too little prayer in the morning. I must try to get out of bed on Saturday a little bit more. I must try to rise and rise with early prayers. He says, yes, but prayer and fasting and special prayer and fasting and all these little things that we do in meetings, those are all good. But the real secret of, soul, of my soul's prosperity lie in the daily enlargement of my heart and fellowship with my God. Is that you? Is it you? Are you like what Mark says? He pointed them 
the twelve so that they may be with him and he could send them out to preach. You might be thinking, what is so special about this guy? You know, people even ask me, I've been sharing quotes a bit, you know, here and there with people, and they're like, yeah, what's so special about him? That's the point. That's why I'm sharing this. The point is, is that there really isn't anything special. This is just a journal. should look like ours. Just simple. Lord, I want to be with you. I'm struggling with my sin. I want to make much of your name. And he did. And he died at 29 years old. He lived with this. He lived with this sense. When you read his letters, he lived with this sense of he knew he was going to die early. All his friends, they were surrounded, 30 years old, 25 years old, 26 years old. There was major outbreaks. Killed a lot of people. But he said, you know what? My life isn't my own. I'm just thankful to be saved. I'm thankful to be his. And I'm thankful to be a part of this disciple-making process. I want to uh, end on this last quote because I think it's really fitting for all of us here because many of us think, well, you know, I don't have a father to pour into me. I, I don't have this, this great, you know, I, I'm not discipled by, by this, this, this spiritual father, this man of God who's, you know, in his 60s and he just has so much to give and I would be great if I could just be under him. Listen with what Shane says. To a man he wrote, he wrote a letter to this little boy, basically, who left his father's house in anxiety. He was in his church, there was one last plea, he said, look, I want to help you, son. I want to help you. He said, I want to tell you this, but I have no friend to care for my soul. I have none to direct me to the Savior, none to awaken my slumbering conscience, none to tell me about the blood of Jesus washing all my sin. None to tell me of the spirit who is so willing to change the heart and to give the victory over passions. I had no minister to take me by the hand and say, come with me and we will do the good. Yes, I had one friend and minister, but that was Jesus himself. And he led me in a way that makes me give him and him only all the praise and glory. Now, though, Jesus may do this again, yet more common way with him is to use earthly guides like you and me. Now, it could supply the place of such a guide to you. I should be happy if I could do that for you. You see the humility? And listen, to be a finger post is all that I want to be, pointing out simply the way. This is... What I so much wanted myself. This is what you need not want unless you wish. The offer is on the table. He was a dying man ministering to dying men, as Baxter says. He was nothing special. He's like, well, I didn't have anybody great to disciple me, but I'll tell you, actually... When I think about it, I did. His name is Jesus. This church was built on that. Disciples come and go. People hurt you. This church is closed. 
But I will say, I could say with confidence that through these, at least these last nine or ten years of this church, one thing I do know is that the Lord is faithful to disciple me. He's done incredible work, but he's still got a long ways to go. You know what? The same is true for you. All we can do to work with each other in our discipleship is just say, let me just, let me just be a signpost. Can I be in your life? I just want to simply point to Jesus. This is what he's done in my life. I simply want to help you and point you to him. Father, thank you so much for forgiving us this incredible, incredible privilege to be disciple makers. But oftentimes we forget what it even is 